Good morning in town. I uh, am right there with Jason and yet also am, I don't even know what I am because I know what checks are and yet also my son found a roll of stamps a couple of months ago and definitely thought he found dad's sticker book and, you know, $7 worth of very expensive stickers later. <laughs> um, anyway, we're in a series uh, called Embodied in which we are talking about the church, but specifically we're talking about what it means for you to be here, not just here in town, but here in terms of being located embedded in a community of faith. So often in the American church, we choose kind of by our own standards, our own expectations, our own desires, the place that we're going to worship at. But church really isn't kind of about you, right? At the same time, we also can see church just as this thing, this collection of people that we do stuff out of. Rather, what Scripture actually calls us to is is something a little bit more complicated than that, but also more beautiful. And that's that God calls a people together, and they together embody Jesus. But that means that you, in the middle of that group of people, are shaped more and more and more into Christ-likeness because of being in a messy, wonderful, hard, glorious group of people over time. So that's what we're talking about with this idea of embodied. One of the things we've been wanting to do as a church for a while, actually, is to hear the stories of our people, because that's one of the ways that over time we shape one another. And no, no more has that been true than in COVID when so many of us have struggled to be able to connect and communicate with one another. So in just a moment, we're going to hear uh, one of the stories of our people And then afterwards, James is going to come and read God's word for us. My parents raised me in a church. I became a Christian when I was 15 or 16. That's funny to say I was raised in the church, but I made my faith my own when I was 15 or 16. It was no longer my parents' faith. It was my faith. And so, of course, I wanted to raise my children in a church where eventually they could make their decisions for their faith to be their own. And once we came to in-town, I saw that as a place where the word was preached. We heard Jesus every Sunday in the sermons. Um, your faith was just not a Sunday thing. It was a part of who you would be. Um, and we wanted to be surrounded by that, not just go to church because people go to church. You are known when you were part of a church and you get to know others. Um, you have an opportunity to be served, but also to serve others. You have an opportunity to love others and to be loved, being with others that believe the same thing. They can help you through the hard times. They can, you can help others through their times. The main thing about being part of this community is the hope of of Christ and what that means 
I often think, how do people live in this world if they don't have that hope? There are so many hard things that people go through. Um, if you don't have that hope, how do you make it? How do you survive? Church gives me the framework and then I am part of the framework of it and all of us in it together. It's interesting that you might go to serve and help others, but you get so much back, I think, too, from that. I used to pray this every week, month or so. God, what do you want me to do for you today? And I need to start asking that again. God, what do you want me to do for you today? Within the church, outside of the church, how can the church help me do what God wants me to do for him today? scripture reading from today is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we do come before you as those who have uh, gathered together. And we ask, Lord God, that you would do what you always do. Uh, come through on your promises, which you always have, to not let us leave the same, uh, but to change us, to shape us, to mold us, even sometimes in very imperceivable ways, that we might be more and more like your son, Jesus. That's actually an incredibly great ask. But you call us to ask it. You enable us to do it. And you find joy in it. And we thank you so much for that. We pray in your name. Amen. So, uh, give you a little insider baseball for a minute. Um, COVID changed all of our lives. And I, it's, it's actually still really, really weird, to be honest, for me to refer to COVID in past tense. Because I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. We're, we're neither like past nor present, but in this weird quasi-twilight zone place with respect to COVID. But it has given, I think over the past couple of months, a sense of reflection on what, what this has done um, to each of us and in each of our lives. Um, personally, socially, vocationally is a big one. Um, I'm sure some of you have had conversations with you about how the idea of a pandemic, whether it was working from home or whether it was your supply chain changing or a job loss or a job gain or whatever, how this uh, affected you. As a pastor, 
I'll tell you the truth, one of the, the great ways in which COVID affected us as pastors was in uh, the idea of connection and communication. Not only did we, uh, the first week after COVID happened, have to learn streaming seemingly overnight. Um, I learned a lot of technology in a very, very short amount of time. We preached to empty rooms. We led worship to empty rooms. And then as the weeks changed and people started coming back, we were in lots and lots of meetings, as I'm sure many of you were as well, about COVID uh, policies. Um, Sometimes we'd literally meet in the morning. By the afternoon, the email you wrote based on the meeting in the morning was completely null and void, and you had to go back and do something again. But then as the weeks continued further, we realized something else. And this was strange because I had this conversation not only with Luke and David and Jimmy, but also with pastor friends all over America and even the world. We didn't know who went to our church anymore. That was nobody's fault. It was just the weird nature of not being able to interpret YouTube or Vimeo results into any actual sense of who's there and who's not there who's coming and who's not coming, who has decided not only to uh, stream our service, but stream 12 other services as well in hopes of finding something that they wanted better. We didn't know who would come back. To be honest, we, we even, though we expected some of you back, right, we, we had honest questions about how this would change the idea of church as a whole. You know, technologically, I mean, I I sat, you know, I I had used Zoom a little bit for school, but video calls, back then it was Skype, right? The verb had not shifted to Zoom yet, but but I I hadn't used it a bunch, um, and, and it hadn't become kind of part of our modern just way of leaning into the world. So, so when we have these real conversations, would people come back? Would people not just simply want to watch and participate in worship from home, watch and listen to a sermon from home, we figure out something to do with the Lord's Supper somehow, wouldn't just people want to do that instead? These were honest questions that really did keep us up at night, and we had to pray a lot about them. The reason I share that with you is because out of those conversations was actually the genesis of this series. Asking the question, what really does it mean for you to be here, for you to be in this room and really in this building. Um, growing up, uh, this was emphasized a lot. Like this was the, um, the big no-no. You don't call church the building. You don't call church the service. The church is the people. And on one hand, this is very, very true, right? And this is what I think got many of us through COVID in not being able to come and meet here in a building is to know that the church was not um, whether or not we were allowed to meet or how we were going to meet or whether we were going to sing or not or be masked or not or whatever. The church was more than that. And for the last couple of weeks, we've actually been talking about that. What does it mean for you to be embedded in a body of people? Well, it means you're not showing up just to a building. You're embedded in a community. And we talked about how that shapes us and how that moves our self-identity. But I want to make sure we don't overcorrect. Because as a 
population, as a people, um, really as a world right now, as polarized as we can be, it's very, very easy for us to take the pendulum and just swing it so, so hard that we begin to forget, maybe not about a building, because we're always aware of whether the air conditioning's on or not. We're always aware of the color of the carpet. We're always aware of parking and where our class during the 9.30 hour is or not. But, but more generally, the sense of this place, this also is church. This service is church. And I want to make sure we're not overcorrecting because the Bible actually does both. It doesn't overcorrect. It says very clearly, you are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We talked about that. But also, the word church itself is actually a word that means assembly, assembling together of the people. And so in some sense, what Hebrews just called us to there, the writer of Hebrews says, you are a people, you are the body of Christ. Now, as that body of Christ, one of your primary things to do is to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. To not neglect, literally the King James says, the assembly, which would have been church. And so this kind of paradigm of the church is not the building or not the service, but the people maybe is an overstep. And we have to think of this as both. And here's why. Because again, you are embodied, you are embedded, you're meshed in a group of people who meet each and every week together to learn from God and from his word, to take the Lord's Supper together, to worship together. Not only are all the other things we talked about over the last couple of weeks true, that you're shaped through your relationships with each other. Over time, you're shaped through the differences you have between each other. You're shaped by this church being a part of the much larger body of Christ. You are also shaped week in and week out, participating specifically in the worship of God with his people on the Lord's Day. This isn't just a byproduct of real church, which is being the people of God. They are all together. Now, as I say this, and as I say that we really came up with this series based on our thoughts about streaming and COVID and the struggles, I actually want to talk to all of us, but specifically to those of you who might still be streaming right now. I think we learned in COVID that... Uh, we are much more vulnerable than we ever realized. And as a result of that, some of us are in situations sometimes where we can come to church and sometimes where we can't. I'm not talking about uh, a choice to participate in specific Sunday morning worship or not based on uh, medical reasons or not. In fact, people who have been unable to participate in the assembly as the writer of Hebrews says, have always existed in the history of the church. And in fact, it's our responsibility as the church, as the assembly, to extend the assembly to those of you who might even be watching right now. That's our job. That's our calling. 
And I would love and pray, please, if, if you are struggling through even specifically this sermon here, it's part of my job to grieve with you that you can't be here and to long for the creation to be renewed so one day we won't worry about all of this anymore and also for us as a church leadership to be there for you and a church people to be there for you and extend this assembly out. I'm not talking about some sort of reason for neglecting the assembly. I'm talking rather to the fact that there's a cost to doing this, just period, in our society. It takes your time. It takes a whole day out of your productivity or out of your rest or out of your kid's soccer schedule or out of your vacation time. There's a real cost of worshiping God that can very, very easily make it so that we want to make a choice to not that's what I want to address today, because over time, if we keep doing that choice to not meet together, what the writer of Hebrews is referring to, we can atrophy, because God isn't only using our membership in the family, in the body, he's using our weekly gathering together as a means of growing us, as a means of building us up more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Now, how is he doing that? In education, there is a concept called domains. Uh, and, and what domains basically just are is a reminder to teachers and educators that we're whole-orbed people. Um, and so we're not just brains on a stick. I'm not just pouring content into your brain and then hoping that you regurgitate it out back on the test, even though I know some of my middle school and high schoolers think that's what their teachers want them to do. Rather, we are whole people. Uh, one framework that's often used by educators uh, to this end is uh, head, heart, hands. You may have heard of this before, but really it just speaks to the fact that we have an intellectual domain or a cognitive domain. We have an affective or emotional domain, and we have a physical domain as well. And Scripture even writing thousands of years before psychologists and pedagogists ever came up with these frameworks, knew this, right? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart and your mind and your strength. We know this. What's interesting is that the writers of the New Testament, Paul and the writer of Hebrews both, also lean into this framework when they start talking about what the church, especially the church gathered, actually is. And what I would propose to you today is that when you are sitting here in worship with the gathered body, God is working in your life in all of these three ways. He, you are not showing up for a lecture. Neither are you showing up for a concert. Neither are you showing up so that you can get past this service and get to the real work of the church out in the world. No, all of these things are important. Indeed, the worship of God gathered together is formational. This is another passage besides the one that 
James just read from Hebrews. This is Paul writing in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Very similar to the writer of Hebrews, he's describing the church. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to read that to you a second time. Look at what Paul does with it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The entirety of Scripture is aware of this. So I'd like to talk in a little bit more detail about each of these three areas. First of all, let's talk about what God does with our minds. In many respects, this is the no-brainer, right? We're Presbyterians. We preach. We talk. We do Bible study. If you want to talk about what we do, we're probably going to describe preaching and Bible study and the other Bible study we go to and the other devotional we're reading beyond that and maybe the other Bible study we wish we could be going to before we ever get down to a lot of the other distinctives about who we are. But one of the things I find really helpful about both the passage in Hebrews and Colossians that we just read is the emphasis on teaching, on the word of Christ, not coming here from this pulpit, coming from each of you. You see, when you're in worship together, whether you're confessing sin, whether you're reading liturgy, whether you're singing, you are declaring the word of God to each other. You are preaching and teaching each other by what you're doing in this service. That's why we have to be very, very careful that there's this, not this distinction between worship and preaching or worship and the Lord's Supper. We, we really, we, we minimize worship, don't we, to just the music, just the singing. We're going to pray for a little bit, and then we're going to worship God, and then we're going to read the Bible, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. No. Scripture is clear. This is all worship of God. Gathered worship now, and then scattered as we go out into the world. And so because of that, it's really, really helpful to know I'll be honest, helpful to me to know that you hearing the word of God this morning does not only rely on me. Now, I get, I was called to be a preacher. This is uh, my calling and one I want to take deeply seriously. And yet, at the same time, I am one voice and one person. But you sit in a service week in and week out and you hear from one another. One of the things I love most about that idea is that 
so often I will show up on Sunday morning, and I'm sure you do too, and we say that sometimes even from the pulpit. We show up on a Sunday morning, and we don't really feel like worshiping. Like our headspace is in a weird spot. It took us a lot of time to get the kids ready, or we weren't feeling incredibly well, or we're just super, super tired, or, 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 or we're grieving and the, and the world is horrible, or whatever. And we show up, and we don't want to sing the songs necessarily. Now, there's totally a place, right, for not singing. It's, it's, we're not judging you. It's, it's okay. Sometimes I will sit and just let words wash over me as well. And yet, I believe as we stand and we sing together in corporate worship, one of the things that we're doing, as we stand and we pray together in corporate worship, as we stand and we confess our sin to one another in corporate worship, one of the things that we're doing is we're able to stand with and for one another. Indeed, what we talked about last week about this sort of priestly role of the church, in some respects, we get to serve that little p to each other. You singing becomes a, I am singing this not because it is true of me, but because I long for it to be true. But I'm reminded that that person over there is singing, and it is true. And that person is singing, and it is true. And I know what they've been through, and I know what they've been through. And because of that, I too can be encouraged that the Holy Spirit has not forgotten me, that I have not failed or, or somehow screwed up or I was wrong, and maybe I'm not even a Christian. No, I can take encouragement by the simple fact that I'm surrounded by other people who are all going through the same thing. And again, what we talked about last week, I'm surrounded by a global cloud of witnesses and a cloud of witnesses throughout history. There is truly nothing I am going through that someone else hasn't gone through first. And I can take encouragement from the gospel. I can take correction from the gospel. I can sit and grow in my belief surrounded by other people. As I question, is that, is that true? Is what so-and-so is saying correct? I'm not just a zombie. I'm listening along with my family. If I say something wrong, you guys together get to call me out on that. Now, all that being said, as we talk about these domains, we do need to be careful about one issue. If you've ever seen a bodybuilder before, um, I'm amazed at what they do. It's actually incredibly hard work. I cannot imagine putting my body through that. But there's the actual bodybuilders who understand um, human anatomy and understand how to build up different body parts. And then there's the bro. The gym bro who really only cares about one question, and that is, what do you bench or what do you lift? And at least in high school, for me, all that meant was the bench press. And, of course, high school Steve was, what, 120 pounds, maybe? And so it didn't matter how good I was, how much a bench wasn't going to be a lot. But what you would see often, especially in high school, was these guys who would work out all the time, but only their upper body. And so what they would end up developing was this, like, Uber strong top half with chicken legs. <laughs> and you were like, 
if like there are rules in a boxing match, I'd lose. But if there aren't rules and I can just kick the leg once and then get away, it doesn't matter how strong you are because your leg is like this. Now, in the same way, we can overemphasize a domain to the neglect of the others and develop a, a worship imbalance, if you will. And you can imagine what it means to overemphasize the mind. This is not a lecture hall. I often deal with this, struggle with this um, personally, I'll be honest with you, in my Bible reading. I don't want to be a Pharisee and say that you're reading, you know, for an X amount of time every single day in what we used to call quiet times or devotionals. Some people read in different ways. But I would often find that I would read, and if I didn't learn something new that day, I felt like my time was wasted. Maybe I just didn't focus hard enough, or maybe I need to pick a book that, that I'm not as familiar with, or maybe I need to, you know, find some new angle on the Scripture to keep me engaged. But the reality is, formation is beyond just the mental and so you can leave a worship service each and every week. And while it's a great question to ask one another, hey, what'd you hear this week? What'd you learn this week? If the answer is, I don't know, that's not always a bad thing. Why? Because we are more than just brains. So much formation happens at the other levels. The, 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 the level of our affections, the level of our desires of our will, you may not know how a sermon is going to land until weeks later when you are suddenly surprised at how motivated you are when you hear a call to serve or when you're in the middle of a worship service singing and a song hits you and you just suddenly start weeping and you have no idea why because you've sung that song 12 times before. Why? Because God is doing something in you that is far beyond only listening to a lecture and processing that. We have to be very, very careful that we're not evaluating our Christian life, our participation in the body, solely by the amount of opportunities we are in to learn. But I said that was the Presbyterian error. Let's move on to the others. Let's talk about the heart, or what Jonathan Edwards called our affections, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous American theologians and Reformed theologians of all time, did not say that you have to feel a certain way to be a Christian. But he came closer than almost anybody else. Because he said it is impossible for the gospel to land on your heart and your mind without your affections being moved. Now, we're all, we all have different personalities, so that movement means different things for each of us. But this is actually biologically proven. A few years ago, there was a study done at Harvard um, right at the beginning of COVID. And um, again, we were all using various things to process COVID. Harvard, Harvard professors were deciding to come up with study projects, and one of them began to study choirs. And they were, they were studying why choirs were still so 
longed for. Participation in choirs was still high, even though we had a number of individuals, as we've talked about, that uh, just are, you know, faith is declining, people are no longer wanting to go to church. Choir participation was not declining at the same level. Why? Well, uh, these professors came up with um, a theory. It had nothing to do with God, but was fascinating that they said stuff happens when you sing together with people. Stuff happens when your emotions, your affections are moved together with other people. Those of you who have been to sporting events or been to rock concerts, you understand this. Something happens that makes me at a heavy metal concert want to bash into other people indiscriminately. <laughs> or at least it did in my teens. <laughs> Something happens when I'm in a, a sporting event and my team is winning that makes me want to do these amazing rehearsed cheers and makes me scream like a madman and lose my voice. This idea of your affections being, being riled up, being moved, is, is sometimes we're kind of allergic to it in our society that emphasizes the mind so much because we're so worried about being manipulated. And I get that. But mental manipulation is just as powerful as emotional manipulation. At the end of the day, you're not a brain on a stick. You're here. It is a good thing for you to be in a group of people and feel something together. Literally, the biology of that Harvard study showed that the brain makes new connections. New neurons are birthed. New things connect together when you are also emotionally moved in the moment. Now, in the same way, we might think of the muscle imbalance of the heart. If the first one was the Presbyterian error, we can just say this one is sort of the American church error. It's like the game of guess who, if you ever played that. Obviously, there is one question you ask at the very beginning more than any other that's going to kill half the board. Is, there, is your person a boy or a girl? I've never played a game with anyone who wasn't being snarky under the age of 15 who has not started a game of guess who that way. In the same way, the average person looking for a church in America without fail is going to judge based on the music. They're going to judge where they are, whether they go or not to that church based on the music. You ask, hey, was church good today? Maybe some of you who are like really, really Presbyterian are going to talk about the sermon being meh. But really, you're going to talk about, you know, was I, was I excited or not? Was I moved or not? And this can carry some error with it, can't it? Because that's very, very culturally construed. I mean, we've talked about that. That's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ is that we all come from different cultures and personalities and aspects we will all have very, very, very different musical preferences. And sometimes the songs that we will sing will speak very intently to kind of our heart language. Talk to anybody who speaks multiple languages. You know for certain that they dream in a certain language, that they grieve in a certain language. 
that if you do something to deeply harm them or deeply anger them, they will default to a certain language. Well, we do that with singing as well. Singing is a universal norm. There's almost no culture in the history of ever that anthropologists have found that did not sing or vocalize what they were feeling, what they were experiencing. But we have to be very, very careful, again, to not so overemphasize where my preferences met that I didn't realize that I was shaped by encountering somebody else's. In fact, in a conversation with Luke earlier this week, he talked about the idea that formation might happen best when you are forced to sing the heart languages of somebody else. And I'm not just talking Spanish, English, Japanese, French, etc. I'm talking just as much the languages of emotion, the languages of sound, the languages of worship, the way people pray differently, the way people sing differently, the way people confess differently. These are actually ways in which God is calling us actually into community rather than to segment ourselves off from one another. Finally, service, hands. Again, this is often thought of as the thing you do outside of worship. Maybe we do the first two in the church service, but really the only people who are like serving God in the middle of the church service are the people working or maybe the ushers or those who are serving communion or that sort of thing. But no, when we look at the, both of these texts, what we see clearly is that there is a connection between meeting together and encouraging one another in good deeds. We see the writer of Hebrews talk about this in verse 24 of chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. It's literally the closest thing in the passage. There's a direct connection between the people of God meeting together and whatever the people of God end up doing when they're not together. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, but here it is again clearly, not just in a generalized sense of, hey, we're together, we love one another, and then the world sees that, but we have a dedicated time and space. We have a dedicated time and space to be messy each and every week, a dedicated time and space to see one another each and every week, a dedicated time and space to be shaped by all of these things each and every week. Of course, service errors, we've pretty much already talked about that. But I, I just want to spend one more point on this because I do believe this error is, for those of us who have been Christians a long time, it can feel really, really easy like we've graduated from Sunday morning worship. I mean, think about, again, very similar to the Bible reading thing, right? If, you, if you've been in worship, if you've been a Christian 40 years, all right, if you've been a Christian 40 years, let's say you even have only come to church the statistically average 1.8 times a month over 40 years, which is actually the percentage people attend church that still means that you have been to church thousands of times over 40 years. I understand that it can feel like the real work is out there. If you're one of those personalities that's excited about Jesus, 
You're here every time the doors are open, but you get frustrated because you're like, I don't see anyone around me changing. I don't see me changing. I want to actually go do something for God. We can miss the importance of worship. The humble recognition that what God is doing here is what fuels out there. It's why the writer of Hebrews and it's why Paul would not divide these two things together. I think I struggle with that, with that idea of application, just as a a sermon thought. If you're someone who is a doer, and I think more and more and more our culture pushes us this way, it can be really, really frustrating to leave a worship service without something to hold on to. Here's my nugget. I've got to remember it. Here's my tweet. I've got to put that into practice. For someone to tell you, hey, your, your application is to keep showing up. And when you don't feel like you're changing, keep showing up again. And when you don't feel like you're, anything's moving, keep showing up talk about it, but ultimately keep showing up. It's not the sexiest thing. It's not the easiest thing, the trendiest thing. It makes church out to be boring. I don't want to say that at all. But I think it's a real arrogant position that we can have to show up and demand God move in the specific way that we believe he should. When in reality, he has already said, whether when two or three are gathered, I am among you. He has already said he is going to show up. And he is already changing you in ways you have no idea. So I want to encourage you this morning. I do want to give you a tangible this morning. This is our worship bulletin. You've got one right in front of you. You know, I'm a parent. I struggle with my kids as much as anyone does in their worship service. But about a month and a half ago, as my family started to come back, um, my seven-year-old, Julie, she started doing something weird and awesome all at the same time. And what she did was to begin to, to ask me, where are we at, Dad? Where are we at? And she was following because, you know, she's just getting into reading well enough to do it to look at the worship service. And I realized, and, heck, I helped put this together, and I still am not always thinking intentionally about where we are, what's going on, what's happening. I'd encourage you this week, don't, don't recycle this. We're going to judge you if you do. We'll assume you took three copies. It's okay. But don't, don't recycle this this week. Take it home. Ask yourself, look through it. How is this shaping me? What's God supposed to be doing here? How does it change that I sang heal us, Emmanuel, instead of heal me? What's it mean that we said together, this is the word of the Lord? I didn't just declare what God's word was going to be. We could ask those questions a thousand times. But as I look through them, 
they remind me who I am. They humble me that he is doing something inside of me. They give me patience and they help me endure. And it's my prayer that that happens for you as well. Let's pray. King Jesus, we do pray that we'd have the faith of a little child to experience a worship service and ask, where are we? Where are we, Daddy? What are we here to do? Help us not just do that this week, but every week. We pray in your name. Amen.